welcome to Plodcast, episode 33. Thanks for your perseverance. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for joining us. So in this uh, opening segment, I want to talk a little bit about the bubble in higher ed. The bubble in higher ed. Now, so uh, let's talk about a bubble first. Um, there was an economist. I think it was uh, Ben Stein's father. I forgot what his first name is, but his last name would have been Stein, who uh, g- delivered this very insightful law, which is anything that cannot go on indefinitely won't. Anything that can't go on indefinitely won't. So what do we have in, um, in higher ed? We have a uh, dysfunctional, wrecked, bloated, and very rich system. So there's a lot of money, a lot of money floating a lot of colleges, and about the only thing that is really succeeding uh, in achieving its defined mission would be the uh, would be the football team. So you you have uh, you, you, we've lost the concept of the university because in order to have a university, you have to have a universe. And in order to have a universe, you have to have an RK, a point of integration, a principle of integration. And uh, since we've lost Christ culturally, we no longer have that. We, uh, so you're, the university down the road from you is not a university at all. It's actually a multiversity. The people in the English department don't know what's going on in physics, and the people in physics don't know what's going on in ag econ, and the people in ag econ don't know what's going on anywhere else. So you have a fragmented system. You've got a fragmented um, um, multiversity. It's not a university. Then in the specific disciplines like forest, forestry or engineering or, uh, or uh, uh, computer programming, you've got standards, you've got defined standards, and people are hitting their marks. They are, they are getting the training that they uh, want to get, but it's very narrow and it's very truncated. In the liberal arts, where people ought to be reflecting on what is, what is man, uh, what is our purpose here, what is the point, that whole thing has fallen, fallen into sort of this, the goo of, of post, postmodernism. Also, you have people treating uh, universities as, uh, or higher education, as a sure ticket to the job market, and so people are being chased into college educations that really don't have any business uh, wasting their money there. They could they could do just fine without it, and the taxpayers footing the bill b- by means of student loans and uh, that sort of thing. And so what's happened is the prices have inflated. Uh, the whole thing is like an overinflated balloon that is going to, at some point, uh, just as just as happens with housing bubbles, so higher education bubbles will burst. So also keep in mind that the actual information that people are after when they go to college, that information is usually available online. Virtually any any subject you want to to uh, learn about, if you want to learn how to do something, you can probably find a YouTube channel dedicated to it. 
And so you can um, get the information, you can get the expertise, and you're now getting to the point where certain online colleges, online uh, universities are taking advantage of the the fact that um, brick and mortar colleges are overpriced, uh, overpriced and overrated. Now I'm saying this as someone who serves on the board of a of a college, and I believe that there really is an argument to be made for bricks and mortar colleges where you um, you have people gather together and learn under the tutelage of certain men who will shape the uh, worldview and outlook and, and, and approach of the students. I think, I think there's a strong argument for that. But there's not a strong argument for it if you're just going to take a pile of money, if you're going to take $30,000 a year in order for uh, your child to be molded and shaped into something or someone that you don't recognize or you, you, you have no... Um, uh, no affinity with. So what's going to happen? Well, anything that cannot continue on indefinitely won't. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a crash. The bubble is going to burst. And when the bubble bursts, you are going to have, just as in the stock market, you're going to have what's called a correction. Um, The people who are going to be uh, still in college two years after the bubble bursts, the people who are still in college two years after the burst, after, after the, the crash, are going to be people who probably ought to be in college, who are probably pursuing expertise in a subject that's worth knowing, and they're probably going to be paying close to market value for it instead of artificially inflated prices. So if, um, if you think if, if you think appropriately, if you, if you think shrewdly, if you think carefully about economics and you look at your hospital bill carefully, okay, and you wonder why, why did the cup of Jell-O cost $5? I didn't need a $5 cup of Jell-O. Or if you're looking at the Pentagon's uh, budget and you're wondering at the $300 hammer, why do hammers cost $300. And then you ask, why does a college education, how is it possible for a college education to cost 30 k a year? How is that possible? Um, well, depend upon it. If you are looking at $5 cups of Jello, if you're looking at um, $300 hammers, if you're looking at $30,000 a year college education, depend on it, the government is involved. Depend on it, there's some sort of jiggery-pokery going on with the prices. The pricing system, there are subsidies, there are kickbacks, there are, some, some, there are regulations that are being fought. Something like that is happening. Because when people are left to their own devices, when you don't have, uh, when you don't have the government interfering with the market, what happens is, of course, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, and if somebody has um, an opportunity to sell a $300 hammer, they're going to do it. But in a free market, when the government's not involved, when someone tries to sell a $300 hammer, there's going to be someone else on right at his elbow offering that same hammer for $10. In the current system, 
the the guy who's selling hammers for three hundred dollars has a, a kind of four, you know he's selling hammers for three hundred dollars so he's got a lot of money so he can hire uh, attorneys to shut the ten dollar hammer guy down um, there are uh, hopeless they're hopelessly entangled regulations and uh, restrictions and qualifications and what we what we need is a deregulated system of higher education it's got to be deregulated and when it's deregulated and it will be by default by necessity after the bubble bursts if we have if we de- deregulate uh, higher education then what you're going to find is people paying for something they understand that they want very much, they are willing to pay the price that it costs to get that thing, and they are going to be uh, the student you want to have. So, beware. Higher education bubble, the the, the bursting of the bubble is coming, I think, pretty soon. Podcast episode 33. So our book this time is a book by C.S. Lewis um, called the, the Pilgrim's Regress. Now, The Pilgrim's Regress is um, uh, probably one of the least read, uh, well, I, I won't say the least read of Lewis's books, out of the mainstream books that Lewis wrote some, uh, some books that were in his uh, field of academic expertise, uh, books like uh, English Literature in the 16th Century or The Allegory of Love. Uh, and those books are not uh, wildly popular. He, then you've got the, his popular apologetic works, Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, Screwtape Letters, and those, uh, and the Narnia stories, obviously, uh, with his fiction. And those books are still selling, selling like crazy. Okay? Uh, among his well-known books, The Pilgrim's Regress is uh, one of the least read. It's not read very much because, uh, because it is a challenging and difficult book. And uh, you, it's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, if I can use an American expression, uh, about the intellectual life in the UK in the 30s when uh, Lewis wrote this. Uh, there's a lot of inside baseball in this. And, and you, uh, if you try to sit down and read through it, you might say, I don't know who any of these people are. Who, who these people are supposed to represent allegorically. And because I don't know what the big picture is, I, there's nothing to take away. Well, even if you don't understand who is being represented um, in this book, there's a lot of value. There's, uh, Lewis is at his winsome um, best when in, in a number of these um, places. The book is an allegory, and it's an allegory defending Christianity, reason, and romanticism. So Lewis, uh, and, and this book is quite striking because he, he wrote it, I think it was in 32, and he wrote this book um, in a period of two weeks. It, it took him two weeks to write this book, um, which it has to be understood. This is, this is a work of staggering genius. Some people have said that um, it was, they think it was his worst book, and, 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 and some have said that that. Uh, Lewis agreed with that assessment that it was his worst worst book, but actually that is uh, based on a misunderstanding of something Lewis said in a letter. Lewis uh, was disparaging a book he wrote before he was a Christian, 
a poem called Dimer. Um, and because that sentence where he was, he, he refers to the Pilgrim's Regress and, and Dimer in the same uh, breath. And because people don't look at the, at the sentence structure closely, they think he's disparaging regress when he's actually disparaging uh, uh, Dimer. So the Pilgrim's Regress is uh, an allegory like Bunyan's uh, famous Pilgrim's Progress. And um, here's, the, here's the basic layout of, of that world. And I won't get, uh, spoiler alert, I, I hope that you get this book and read it. There is an annotated version of it if you want um, if you want a scorecard to, you know, who, who represents what, what does that mean, and, and so on. There's an annotated Pilgrim's uh, Regress available if you want to read it that way. But I, I'll, I'll trust that you will um, get it and read it, and so I'll, I, I won't do any spoilers here. But the, the protagonist is named John, and he, um, he grows up in a, in a place called Puritania. And Puritania is just north of an east-west road in that country. And at the eastern end of the road are the mountains. And then if you follow the road straight west, you will eventually come to the what Lewis calls the Grand Canyon, the Great Canyon. Um, and uh, John, has, when he's a young man, has a vision, uh, a, 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 an enrapturing vision of the island. Uh, and this island is uh, ineffably sweet. It creates the sense of desire and longing in him, and he has to have the island. He has to find the island. And of course, readers who uh, are familiar with Lewis's Surprised by Joy can have no trouble identifying that island with uh, the sentient or the longing that Lewis uh, that Lewis had that set him on his uh, his course. The Pilgrim's Regress is very much a uh, very much autobiographical. So um, uh, John has this vision of the island, and one thing leads to another, and he escapes from Puritania. Uh, remember, Lewis grew up in Ulster in Protestant Northern Ireland. Um, uh, John escapes from uh, Puritania and sets out to, to find his way in the great wide world, going west on this east-west Road and he he meets various uh, villains, scoundrels, offers of help from different people, and uh, the first person he encounters is Mister Enlightenment. Uh, he he uh, meets up with philosophy, a character named Wisdom. He meets with Mister Sensible, and in Lewis's imagery, if you go north of the road, if you get off the road going north, you find the astringent or severe errors. And if you go south of the road, you encounter all the muddy mysticism, sensuality, debauchery, um, uh, magic, that sort of thing. So um, the the communists and the fascists are way up north, uh, enthralled in Mr. Savage. Uh, you have other angular um, errors um, that are north of the road. And then uh, south of the road, you have uh, Mr. Broad, who's a tolerant liberal churchman, and so on. So, uh, John uh, has encounters with all of these different people. He's in. He's captured by the giant Freud, uh, Sigismund. He's um, and he's delivered from Freud by reason, uh, and he makes his way steadily west. They come to the canyon, which they can't get across, and so they go north, 
uh, along the canyon looking for a way across it and they go south and they they can't they can't get across finally they they um, get across the canyon with the aid of mother kirk meaning they've become christians and um, and they finally get to on the other side of the canyon john gets down to the sea and he looks out and he sees his beloved island but then he is informed or he realizes that the shape of the island is exactly like the shape of the landlord's castle, the landlord being God, uh, in the mountains to the east of his home in Puritania. In other words, he's gone around the globe and he's looking at the island, but he's actually looking at the, the mountains where he uh, grew up or the mountains that are right next to where he grew up. Well, then he's equipped and given a, uh, given a sword and he returns he he returns to puritania he returns to the eastern end of the road that's the regress of, of the pilgrim's regress and uh, on the way he has to um, do some definitive valiant deeds so i'll just leave it there it's a great great book so homartiology we are continuing our study of sin and sinfulness and looking at the greek words in the new testament that uh, describe various sins. Paul tells us that God is not the author of confusion, but rather of peace. That's in 1 Corinthians 14.33. The word for confusion here is akatastasia. And it's interesting that Paul contrasts it with peace. Peace is contrasted with confusion. So God is not the author of confusion, but he's rather the author of peace. The confusion can simply be the way it is out in the world in unsettled times, which we see in Luke 21.9, or it can be the result of persecutions brought against the church. So uh, Paul speaks of tumult that he had to go through. He refers to that in 2 Corinthians 6.5, and no doubt that tumult was engineered by his enemies. But the enemy of all our souls wants to drag this kind of thing into the church. Um, I think it was Dwight Moody who said, there's no problem with the ship being in the ocean. But there is, a big, there is a big problem with the ocean being in the ship. There's not a problem with the church being in a sea of confusion, but there is a problem with the sea of confusion coming into the church. And so that's why Paul was afraid that when he came to Corinth, he would encounter tumult there as well uh, amidst the general chaos. That's what he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 12.20. So what is the source of all such confusion and tumult? James tells us that the font of this corporate problem is the individual sin of envying and striving. That's in James 3.16. So where you have envy and strife, there you have confusion. That, that's, uh, the, as the proverb says, the devil loves to fish in troubled waters, and envy and strife uh, generate that kind of problem. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform.